God, our Father, Lord, we praise you today and we worship and glorify you. For you are worthy, Lord, to receive our praise and our glory. We give you glory. We lift you up and exalt you, God. We praise you and we thank you for who you are. Oh, Lord, you have given us life and breath and everything that we have. You sustain our very lives from moment to moment. We are very grateful to know, Lord, that you are in heaven and that you are in control of your creation. Lord, we're grateful to know that we are the subjects of your kindness and your mercy through our Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have redeemed us from sin and death. Lord, that you've made us new creatures in Christ and that even now you're fashioning us after his image and making us more like him. And Lord, we just thank you for the privilege that we have to gather and to spend so much time digging into a text of scripture. And Lord, it's been so rich. There's so much here. And we just are in awe and in wonder of the amazing things that you have written for us. And uh, we just ask that you'd help us to understand more clearly this day. And, uh, Father, that you would strengthen and encourage our faith and help us, Lord, to be about your business, to be a people that um, are to the praise of your glorious grace. We thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Something is buzzing. Is it that speaker right there? Can you can you put it down just a hair, Robert? How about now? I think that's better. Can everybody still hear me? You guys in the back, can you hear me? Okay, good. Okay, before we start, I want to, this number, page 66, is an answer to a question that was raised in class last week. So I want to address that. So, concerning the question raised in class last week, Question. I tried to repeat it as best as I could. If you are saying that no one will be saved after the rapture, how is it that you can say that people will be saved in the millennial kingdom? This is logically inconsistent. So, uh, answer, true. That's not consistent. Let me clarify. I do not mean to say that people can never again in the course of history be saved after the rapture, which is the second coming, in my understanding but that during the time of God's judgment, which commences immediately after the rapture and continues until Christ has destroyed the earthly kings and those in authority and destroys the beast and the false prophet and establishes his own earthly governmental structure. This period will be a period of wrath and destruction from the Almighty where God is exterminating sinners, in the language of Isaiah 13, not saving them. The obvious teaching of our Lord is that once he comes and delivers his people, it will be too late to heed the warnings any longer. So I'm not saying that never again in history will people be able to be saved. What I am saying is when Christ comes and delivers the church, at that time he commences judgment, not salvation. And for a period of time... 
he is going to be bringing that judgment upon the earthly kings and rulers and those in authority. He's going to bring judgment upon all mankind, which is clearly seen in the book of Revelation. And um, he will ultimately uh, kill the Antichrist and the false prophet by throwing them in the lake of fire, at which time he will bind Satan and he will establish his own throne in Jerusalem. And um, I believe, if you will, at that point there is a transition that's taking place in the ages. That um, time is going to be very different from the time we experience now because the Lord Jesus himself is going to be physically sitting on a throne after he has brought all of this destruction on the current world system. And the world as we know it will never again be like it is now. It will change drastically. Okay? However, we know that during the millennial kingdom, there will still be um, sinful men. There will still be the presence of unregenerate people called the nations in the book of Revelation that are alive on the earth. However, the amount of revelation that we have from Scripture concerning the nature of the millennial kingdom, what it's like in the world, what it's like on the earth, is very limited. Okay? So, um, I want to further make this point. What is explicit in Scripture and what is only implicit in Scripture concerning this issue, okay? <coughs> concerning the issue of, if you're saying people are, no one's going to get saved after the rapture, how is it that they can get saved in the millennial kingdom? Well, let me just kind of go on here. The teaching of Jesus is very clear concerning the fact that once deliverance comes, God's judgment commences immediately. And these, of course, are from the notes on uh, page... Uh, page 56 and following. <clears throat> Jesus teaches in Luke 17, uh, starting in verse 26. He says, Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of, of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Okay. So what is Jesus' point? His point is, the very day that Noah entered into the door of the ark is the very day that God's judgment came and destroyed everybody that was left. All who didn't enter the ark were destroyed in the judgment of God. It's the same in the time of Lot, except in the time of Lot, it's just a, a, a local occurrence, whereas in the time of Noah, it's a global occurrence. Okay, But the principle is still the same. On the day that Lot left Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained down and destroyed them. The idea is that the very minute, the very moment, the very day that the righteous are delivered, God is bringing judgment. At that point, he's no longer delivering. He is then judging. He is then destroying. He's then bringing the wrath that he 
promised and warned of. <laughs> right? So, <clears throat> not only is the second coming of Christ inevitable, but when it comes, there will be no way of escape for anyone who is not ready. This is Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3. He's saying, when everybody in the world is thinking it's peace and safety, listen, they're just pying and planting and building and being married and eating and drinking. They just think it's just business as usual. What does Paul say? Then sudden destruction will come upon them. Okay? And so the point is is that um, they won't escape. This is the point. When the judgment comes, there won't be any escape. It's going to be a time of judgment. The time of deliverance has passed. When? Chapter 4, verse 15 through 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud trumpet call, with the voice of a command, with the voice of the archangel. Right? The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and reign will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever. Right? But when that day of the Lord comes, okay, those who are waiting for Christ, they're going to be taken to be with him. Those who are paying no attention are going to suddenly be destroyed. This is Jesus' very clear teaching in the Olivet Discourse in the parable of the virgins. This is what he's saying. He's saying, if you're not ready when the bridegroom comes, you're like a foolish virgin who didn't do what she needed to do in order to be ready for the bridegroom. So that when the bridegroom comes, she will be taken by surprise and not enter in with the bridegroom. And he goes on to make the point further. Then they will come back and knock on the door and plead and say, Sir, open up for us. And he will say, Sorry, Charlie. It's a done deal. You had your opportunity. And you didn't take it when you had it. What's the point? They will not escape. It will be a time of judgment. Those who are left behind will not be left behind to be saved. They will be left behind to be judged. This is clear in Jesus' teaching. This is also what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and following. He says there, concerning the second coming of Christ, that he is coming to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, right? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, in the context of Thessalonians, when is that? That's what we read about in chapter 4, verse 15 through 17, when the Lord himself descends from heaven with the angels and the trumpets, in the clouds, with great power and glory, when he comes. What will he do? He'll deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, he's going to deal out retribution to them. He's not going to offer the gospel to them. He's going to deal out retribution. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When? When will this happen? When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. That's when that will happen. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you is believed. Of course, we read about the same thing in Isaiah about the day of the Lord. That God is coming to judge. He's going to exterminate the sinners. He's going to punish the world for its evil. What's my point? My point is, it's very clear in the teaching of Scripture. It's explicit. This is not an implication. It's explicit. 
that when the deliverance comes, then comes the judgment. That the way of escape is before. The way of escape is through faith. But once the judgment comes, the judgment has arrived and you will not escape. That's the point. Not only in Paul, but also in Jesus and also in John and also in Peter. That same point could be made. However, let me go on here. Notice in these verses above Paul's point, they will not escape. Those who are left after the coming of the Lord will not escape, but will instead be destroyed, as he makes clear in 2 Thessalonians sorry, chapter 1, verse 7 through 11. The obvious teaching of our Lord is that once he comes and delivers his people, it will be too late to heed the warnings any longer. I want to read for you the passage in Luke chapter 13, where Jesus teaches this also. This is not the parable of the ten virgins, but he's teaching the same truth. Listen to what he says. Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, we taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. When does this happen? This happens when the owner of the house gets up and shuts the door. What door? The door of salvation in this context, right? So once the door of salvation is shut, what happens? Destruction, judgment, that's what happens. So going on, what is only implicit in Scripture? Okay, now I want to teach you a principle about listening to Bible teachers and being very discerning Christians on your own, okay? And I'm using an example from something that I have said to you that's only an implication. It's not explicit in the text of Scripture. And what I want to exhort you to do is build the framework of your understanding on passages of Scripture that are explicit. Then fill in the stuff that's not so clear with logically drawn implications according to the explicit teaching. You understand what I'm saying? Let me go on. So concerning this issue, can people be saved in the millennium, even though you're saying people won't be saved after the rapture, okay? After the millennial kingdom is established, we have very little biblical revelation concerning what the nature of that time period is like, especially the message of the gospel and how sinful men who are present in the millennium, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, are reconciled to God. Because of this limited revelation, I have assumed or implied that God is still about the business of saving men and that their salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the nature of the message is vastly different from the age we now live in because of the physical presence of Christ in the millennium. We will preach, we will preach about a physically present Christ through whom sinners can be reconciled. You understand what I'm saying? The gospel is going to change somewhat drastically in the millennial kingdom. Why? Because right now we're telling people about a Jesus they can't see who's reigning from a throne in heaven that they cannot see and they think we're nuts. Right? Why? Because they don't have the faith we have. God has to give that to them as a gift. 
true. But in the millennial kingdom, it will be a record of human history that Jesus has come descending from heaven with a loud trumpet call, raptured his people, raised them from the dead, destroyed the earthly kings, and established his own uh, governmental structure in Jerusalem. So when we tell people about Christ in the millennium, we're saying, this is the Jesus who's ruling the world right now. Okay, I understand how the gospel is vastly different in that time. Okay, so here's what I'm saying. All this stuff I'm telling you, I'm not quoting scripture. Why? Because there aren't scriptures about this. These are implications. These are assumptions that we make based on explicit things that are told us in scripture. Like what? Well, like Jesus is going to come again. And he's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem. And he's going to reign from his throne. Read Zechariah 14. He's going to reign from his throne. He's going to rule over the nations with an iron scepter. He's going to be physically present in Jerusalem. The law of the Lord will go out from Zion and from Jerusalem. And nations will stream to it. And they will glorify the Lord there. And they will come. They say, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the mountain of the house of Jacob, that we might learn from him. Okay, and the nations are going to come. The, 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 the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in that time. Okay, and so, so my point is, is that the gospel is very different in that time. But what I'm saying is, because of the nature of God's purposes of redemption, we are assuming that because there's still sinful, unregenerate people there, that God is still saving people. You understand how I'm coming to my logical implication? But for me to dogmatically defend that somehow becomes more difficult. Are you with me? So what I'm saying to you is to, to understand the difference between explicit teaching right from Scripture and implications that we draw based on that explicit teaching. And I'm saying... Dig your roots and put your stakes in the ground on the explicit teachings of Scripture, okay? And fill in the gray areas with implications that make sense according to what the Scripture has said, okay? Now, with that being said, I want to say one more thing. I'm going to take a question there, but uh, and it's just this. This is the principle I want you to gain from this, okay? Factual data from Scripture or mere implications from Scripture, This is only an assumption and an implication, for it is not explicit in Scripture. What is that? That people are actually saved in the millennial kingdom. The Bible doesn't say that, okay? But I'm assuming that. Why? Because there's sinful men there, and it's God's main purpose in the course of creation to redeem sinful men through Christ. So I'm implying that men will be saved there. We, um, <clears throat> however, the fact that those left after the rapture will be destroyed and that it will be too late to be saved is explicit in Scripture. Understand what I'm saying? Okay, so it is not wrong to make implications from the clear teaching of biblical data. We must do this. This is, for instance, how we learn things like the doctrine of the Trinity. For example, does the Bible anywhere use the word Trinity? But is it implicitly clear from scripture that God is triune yes okay so there's where you draw implications based on explicit teaching in scripture but you can't say it's explicit because the text doesn't say it's explicit so what am I saying about that I'm saying when it comes to drawing those implications that's where we need to be really careful and we need to be very discerning especially when Bible teachers are trying to inflict us with their views (laughs) 
Okay? Are you with me? Okay, so, however, we must be careful and discerning when dogmatically defending these implications or believing implications that Bible teachers make. Is everybody with me? You got the point. You got the principle, right? Okay, all right. Dave. Well, my question is, maybe I missed something, but if the uh, believers are raptured, and the unbelievers are destroyed, who is going to be living on the earth at that point? Okay, so I'm glad you asked that. Um, I don't believe that all of the people on the earth will be destroyed. I think that's very clear in the text of Scripture. In fact, in the prophets, they are spoken of as survivors. Okay? But not only that, let me bring up a whole other can of worms that we haven't even talked about here, which make it very clear that there are survivors, namely the nation of Israel. Mm. Ethnic Israel, okay? Between the time that Jesus comes and raptures the church and the time that he establishes millennial throne, this time I just told you is a time of tremendous judgment. In the middle of that thing, the most glorious thing that happens is the restoration of ethnic Israel. Okay, so now I haven't gone into great detail about this, nor will I. Uh, in the course of this uh, teaching because it's outside of the context of Thessalonians. But <clears throat> my point is just that we know for a fact that, that Israel gets saved. So what am I saying? I'm saying they get restored by coming to Christ. Okay, how does that happen? It happens when Christ comes again. One of the things that Christ does when he comes is he saves the entire ethnic surviving nation of Israel. Why do I say surviving? Because when, God's, uh, when, when the Antichrist does his thing, and when Christ comes and begins to pour out his wrath, there's, to, to put it very loosely, there's bodies flying all over the place. Okay? And, and what that mess looks like in the world is very difficult to discern from Scripture. I mean, we have all these passages that tell us explicit things about it, but it, it, it's hard to grasp how it all plays out. But, but nevertheless, my point is, is that during that time, we know that Israel gets restored. We know that Israel gets saved. We know that Jesus comes again, and when he establishes his throne, it's at this time that he takes that saved nation of Israel, tribe by tribe, and gives them their allotted inheritances in the land by family name. Okay? And so, if you will, there's one group of people that gets saved during that time. It's the Jews. Okay? Uh, you know, that raises further questions. Well, how can you say no one gets saved after the rapture when Christ is here judging if you're telling me now that Israel's going to get saved? <laughs> well, because you have to understand that Israel, ethnic Israel, is a group of people who belong to God by covenant. And that God, Paul's point in, in, Paul, in, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 11 is that all of ethnic Israel is going to be saved when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And, of course, this is the key point in dispensational premillennialism. The key point is, is that God is going to come and restore Israel. There's going to be a future Israel, okay? And, and in that time when he restores Israel, um, that happens in immediately in dispensational premillennialism. That commences immediately at the rapture. So this is why in, in a pre-tribber is a pre-tribber. He's saying that 
the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled when the rapture occurs. Okay? And that the only people that will be saved after that are tribulation saints who are Gentiles who come to faith through uh, Jewish evangelists who are actually been saved now and preaching the gospel. Okay? So, if you will, that's how dispensational premillennialism uh, works some of these things out. Uh, and they have some very plausible points. That's why there's so many uh, biblical scholars who hold that view. Much of their arguments are, are come from explicit teachings in Scripture. So uh, that's why it's such a controversy. <laughs> that's why there's such a controversy between dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. I see your hands one sec. <laughs> So the only other point I want to make is, is that so during that time, there's also going to be survivors on the earth. That in, in my understanding, people who survived the wrath of God simply because Christ did not destroy them. Okay? A lot could be said about that. That's a big can of worms. There are passages all over the Bible about that time period of God's judgment, the most explicit of which are in... Revelation, uh, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. Okay, where, I mean, you got, <laughs> you got demons with stingers and, you know, torturing men and the sun coming and killing, the sun killing people. The sea turning in, a third of the sea turning to blood and all of the creatures in the sea dying. This kind of thing. Hundred pound hailstones falling from heaven on men and killing men, Right? The Bible says men still did not repent of their witchcraft, their sexual immorality. You know, just unbelievable things. I mean, can you imagine 100-pound hailstones falling out of heaven, killing men by the sovereignty of God? <clears throat> so uh, my point is is that there, there, will, there will be survivors. I think I'm answering your question. There will be surviving nations and a redeemed, regenerate, but mortal Israel left upon the earth to populate their tribal uh, inheritance throughout the millennial kingdom. Israel will lie down in peace on, on, on Mount Zion and on the hills of, of uh, Palestine. So that whole thousand year period will be a time when Israel is gloriously reunited to Christ, their king. Okay? Of course, that's the fulfillment of prophecies all the way back to Moses. Right? Okay? One more, and then I'm going to move on. Does that have anything to do with the dry bones? Okay, all right. Dry bones. Ezekiel chapter 37. Um, does it have anything to do with the dry bones? Well, I would say yes and no. So... Um, what it does have to do with the dry bones, if you read the context of Ezekiel chapter 37, what you have is um, God, uh, there's a prophecy where Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones and it, he said, you know, the, the Spirit of the Lord says, prophesy to these bones, son of man, and so he does, and, and he tells the bones that come together and put on flesh, and group, all right, and so then, then there comes this entire army of redeemed people, right? And if you go on to read what it means, it's basically the idea that God will gather Israel together again from where? From all the nations where I scattered them, and they will become one people in the land again, right? Now, question, has that happened? 
No. I disagree. I think it absolutely has happened. I think Israel is one people again, one nation in one place. Now, here's why I also said no. Because I think that the fulfillment of that prophecy, and which, by the way, is in the context of Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, which is talking about regeneration, by the way. You might be familiar with the passages in Ezekiel 36 that talk about regeneration. Okay, So what I'm saying is, is that the fullness of, of that, the full scope, let's put it this way, the full scope of that prophecy in Ezekiel 37 will not actually be fulfilled until the nation has been saved or regenerate and exists in the land. Okay, That part hasn't happened yet. Right. However, God, let me put it this way. Uh, let's not say that God has gathered them uh, because, let's put it this way, he is gathering them even now. So Because even now we know that there are Jews still coming, as the scripture said, to, to the land of Palestine, that God is even now bringing them from all the nations where he scattered them and, and making them one people. Even though, look at this, right now we could have never known this. <laughs> except in the course of history, that there they are in the land, and yet they're unregenerate. There they are in the land, and they reject Christ, their Messiah. There they are in the land, and they don't even know their king. Right? But we also know from the prophets that there's coming a day. A day when the, God says, I will pour out a spirit uh, of grace and supplication on them, and they will mourn. They will mourn. They will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn as one mourns over an only child. Right? On that day I will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication on the house of Israel and on the house of David, he says. He goes on and on. That's Zechariah 12 through 14. That's amazing stuff. Stuff we could have never known. So actually if you, if you look at that enough, you, you, you can figure out that Israel is unbelieving up until that point. But, it, it, but in, until you have New Testament revelation, that stuff doesn't really come clear, right? But we know that even according to the prophets and according to Jesus and according to the apostles, that Israel does get saved. That God, and when we say Israel, now we're not talking about the Israel who are all the children of Abraham in the context of Romans 9. We're talking about all the ethnic nation of Israel who gets saved in the context of Romans 11. Are you with me? And you have to go study that passage in order to figure that out. But it's crystal clear. It's not, it's, it's, you can't even dispute it. Because, there, because Paul draws a contrast between ethnic Israel and non-ethnic Israel. And he says ethnic Israel will all be saved. So, but during that time, if you read the prophets, you find out that two-thirds of the nation gets killed. Two-thirds of the nation of Israel gets killed and only a third remain. And there's a lot of detail in the prophets about that. Okay. Uh, one more. Do you believe that all Jews will have to return to Israel? Will have to return to Israel for what? Uh, I believe I believe that there. If you read the prophets, you'll find that there is this very specific company of saved Israelites who are called um, the remnant. 
the remnant who is saved. Okay? Of that remnant who is saved, they are all people who are present in the land of Palestine during that time. Does that answer your question? What about those who are saved that live like in America or different places? Are they going to have to, will they be well, returned to Israel? Well, they, they uh, of course, right now, Jews can be saved through believing the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. True? And there's, they're all over the world. Saved, regenerate Jews, right? But guess what? Those Jews are going to get immortal bodies at the rapture. True? So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. I'm trying. So up until the time of the rapture, Jews are, uh, can believe the gospel and be saved, or they can remain in their obstinance, and it may be that they are of the company that gets restored, but I highly doubt that. I think that's going to be a small number of Jews that live in the land of Palestine who in the prophets are referred to as the, the remnant. And when this remnant gets saved, it's going to be through uh, uh, believing upon Christ. It's, and that's how they get saved. It's on that day of mourning when God saves them by his grace. Okay? So, wait, time out. <laughs> so, um, I want to have a Q&A with you. See all these questions? A lot of people feel uncomfortable asking their questions because they don't want to make me chase rabbits so that the whole class has to chase their rabbit. So what I'm going to do is <laughs> So what I'm going to do is hold a Q&A, all right? And I meant to do this at the beginning of the class, but we'll just do it right now. If if you're interested in coming to a Q&A session where I'll also do a little bit of teaching, Outside of this class, on an evening, in the next week or two, please raise your hand. Okay, that's enough people to do it. So I'll, I'll definitely do that. Now, the, the harder question, what about a Monday night, a Friday night, or a Sunday night? Okay, so I'm going to ask, and you raise your hand if it's a good night for you. Okay? M- Monday night. Monday night. There's quite a few takers there. Okay, Friday night, uh, about an equal number. Sunday night, looks like more. Okay, so the only problem then is next Sunday night is a missions meeting, and I can't do it then. Um, so that means two weeks is the 23rd. I think I could do it then. Sound like a good... Sunday night, the 23rd, here at the church, 6 o'clock, potluck dinner and Q&A session on eschatology. Sound good? 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock's fine. 5 o'clock work for everybody? Yeah? Okay. So we'll come at 5, we'll have some grub, and then we'll go to town. Okay? Get your questions together. Get your questions together. And if you want your question to get a really prominent answer, email it to me ahead of time. Not the day before. (laughs) Okay? Uh, I might even give you a written response if you give me a written question. So so that's that. Okay, we're going to move on. Ready? Okay. We are on page 58 of our notes. Good night. Page 58 of our notes. 
and we have been going through uh, verses 4 through 6, where Paul says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So, you know, Paul's point is, is that um, when Christ comes again, the, the unbelieving people in the world are going to be saying peace and safety, and then sudden destruction is going to come on them when the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. But he says, you brothers, you're not like them. You're not in darkness, so that that day should overtake you like a thief. In other words, you're going to be aware of the events or the signs of Christ coming, and you're going to know that the season is upon us, right? Or in the words of Jesus, that your redemption is near, or that he's even right at the door, right? Because when you see, he says in Luke, when you see all these things uh, happening, know that the Son of Man is near, even right at the door. When you see the signs of his coming, you realize that it's very near, okay? And so this is what Paul's saying. You won't be overtaken like a thief in the night. But why? Because we're sons of light. We're sons of the day. We walk in the light. We understand. We have the revelation of God. We have the sight from the Spirit of God telling us that these things are coming upon the world. And so uh, we got through most of that down into verse 5 where he says, We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, he says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So the contrast between the sons of light and those in darkness, this is at the bottom of page 58, is one that can be clearly discerned by our lifestyle. True Christians honor God by the way they live, both in their abstaining from sinful activities like drunkenness and immorality and live holy lives of purity and sobriety before the Lord. For example, Peter says, concerning the second coming in chapter 3, verse 11 and following, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, you know, Peter is here saying that what kind of people ought we to be knowing that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief? What, what kind of people ought we to be knowing that God is coming in soon judgment upon the earth and that first he's going to deliver his righteous company of people? What kind of people ought we to be? Righteous. Pure, holy, he says uh, that we ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. That word conduct can be translated as behavior. Holy behavior, right? And, and godliness, right? Holy conduct meaning doing good things and not doing bad things, right? Holy conduct. And godliness, what does that mean? Being like God. Loving, patient, kind, joyful, self-controlled, faithful, wise, compassionate, forbearing, forgiving, godliness. Amen? Okay. On this basis, Paul tells the Christians to live alert 
and sober, like people of the day, not to be asleep and unaware, like people sleeping at night. Here he kind of has a play on words. First he's talking about sleeping in the context of being dead, mm-hmm. right? Now he's kind of now he's saying in this contrast of sons of day and sons of night, he's saying he's saying uh, don't be asleep like you were in your bed, crashed out, not knowing what's going on around you. Okay, he says we're, we're not like people who are sleeping. <laughs> Instead, we're what alert, right? We're not like a bunch of drunks. We're what? We're sober, right? And, and so uh, we are not to sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. His point is clear. In regard to the second coming of Christ, we are not to be asleep, but awake and alert, paying attention to the events of the day, being sure not to be overtaken suddenly by his coming, but living in holiness and eagerly awaiting our deliverance. Amen? And isn't that Peter's exact point? In chapter 3, verse 11 through 13, it surely is. Okay, so how ought Christians to live in light of the second coming? In holy conduct and in godliness, what? Look what Peter says. He says, hastening the coming, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Right? What's Peter saying when he says to be looking for the day of God? Right? He's saying, pay attention, be alert, pay attention to the signs of his coming. Look for it. Right? Lift up your head. When you see all these things happening, lift up your head for your redemption is drawing near. When you see all these things happening, lift up your heads for your redemption is drawing near. Okay? You understand? We need to be discerning about these times that we live in. I'm not suggesting you read your Bible over the newspaper. I am suggesting that you pay close attention to the things that are happening that are clearly described in Scripture as signs of His coming. Okay, And when you see those, you ought to be very carefully discerning what they are and understanding if those are the things that the Lord had said. Not by implication, but by explicit teaching of Scripture. Are you with me? Okay. I tell you, man, uh, I, I will say this. Let me choose the right words here. Many prophecy teachers build huge, huge edifices of teaching of things based on current events. And they try to take the scripture to twist them and contort them in ways to support their ideas about current events so that they can exploit you to fill their pocket full of money. Right? Thus, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Are you with me? I'm going to tell you, that, that boy sold some books. I trust there are better things with you, family, that you're not led astray by such things. Why? Because you read your Bible, and you pray for insight, and you look very carefully at the text of Scripture. And you don't believe men, you believe God. Amen? Okay. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, and 8. 
For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, he says, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. His point again is clear. In regard to the looming judgment of Christ's second coming, we shouldn't be unaware like we were sleeping or morally uncontrolled as if we were drunk. For, he says, those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Those are the sons of the night. Those are the ones who are in darkness. What are they doing? Well, they're sleeping in regard to the events of the second coming. They're not paying any attention. They're sawing logs, right? Or they are drunk, right? They're, they are inebriated. They're not sober, okay? Think about, in your mind, a picture of a drunk guy, you know? Somebody that's really drunk. You ever seen one of those really drunk guys and they're trying to walk down the sidewalk and they take a couple steps, man, they fall over and, you know, they're moving this way, you know, and then they they, they move over this way and then they kind of catch their balance and then they kind of go back over this way, right? You see, a drunk guy doesn't have any control of his faculties. Okay, and this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, be self-controlled, be alert, be sober, pay attention. Live in holy conduct before the Lord. This is what he's, this whole this uh, whole section beyond this is practical instruction in, in, uh, in church life. But the point is just that <clears throat> he's saying, don't be drunk. I mean, the Bible's clear about this, right? Ephesians five, right? Do not be drunk with wine, right? By implication, we could say drunk with anything, amen? Not just wine, but strong drink, and not just strong drink, but strong pills, (laughs) right? Don't be drunk. Don't be inebriated. It's very clear in Scripture. Why? Because we're not like that. We're not sons of drunkenness, amen? We're sons of the living God. We don't need drunkenness to be satisfied. We're satisfied in Christ. Amen? He is our everything. Not only that, when we get drunk, we lose our faculties. We lose control and we do stupid things. Amen? I won't ask you if you've done drunken, stupid things. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a bad situation, is it not? So, <clears throat> the point is, is that In regard to the second coming, listen, Jesus made this point very clear in the Olivet Discourse. He also brought up drunkenness. And he said, you're not to fall away, I'm I'm, uh, paraphrasing, you're not to fall away with the drunken people of the world and not pay attention to the second coming of the Lord. Instead, you're to be alert, you're to be sober, you're to be about the master's business. There's a parable in Matthew 25, right after the parable of the ten virgins, where he says this. He says, you need to be busy about the master's business, using your time and your talent and your treasure that the master gave you to do his business. And don't be like the drunken people of the world who are squandering what they have from God. Okay? And if you will, this is what Paul is saying. We're not sons of the night. We're sons of the day. And that day is not going to overtake us like a thief. Why? Because we're paying attention. Right? Why? For God has not destined us for wrath. 
right? But for salvation. We're looking for and hastening the day of God. Why? Because we're going to be saved. We're going to be delivered. We're looking for Christ to come and take us out of here, baby. Right? Are you with me? This is the hope of a Christian. This is our hope. Christ is coming to take me to be with him. Amen? So shall we be with the Lord forever. Listen, it's not just the fact that you're going to be delivered from this world. That's, that's not really the primary thought of our blessed hope. The primary thought is we get to be with Christ. Jesus himself. We get to possess Jesus physically. Are you with me? That's what we're hoping for. Because when we see him, we will be like him. And we are going to have a, a, an unbelievable capacity to experience God at that point. Amen? Amen. Uh, so he says here, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. I think I already made the point, don't get drunk. Amen? Amen. Was that pretty clear? Yes. <laughs> it's really clear right here in the text of Scripture. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Okay? All right. Um, instead, since we are of the day, we should be aware and sober. Then he uses yet another analogy of Christian life, stating, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, as, and, a, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here he is describing that our Christian faith is like being prepared for battle with all the gear needed for warfare. The emphasis here is on being prepared as if for warfare. This he describes as faith, love, and hope, that beautiful triad of Christian virtue which is the possession of all who trust in Christ. This kind of armor imagery is common in Paul's writings. So here's what he's saying. Instead of being a son of the night and being drunken and being asleep and unaware, what are we, right? Well, we're alert and sober, and and what have we done? We've put on like a breastplate Faith and love and like a helmet, hope for salvation. He's saying we are prepared for battle with the virtues of Christian life that have been given to us by God. That's who Christians are. Christians are believers. They have faith in Christ. Amen? Christians are the sons of love. Amen? Love is the guiding principle in everything we do. Love is the main thing, is it not? What, teacher, what is the great command in all of the law, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Christians are a people of love for God and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the main thing, amen? We put on as a breastplate, trusting in Christ and loving God and loving his people, Amen? And listen, as a helmet, that thing that protects your most important parts here, right? What? Hope. Here's the thing about Christians. We have hope. Man, we have, what are you going to do? Kill me? Are you with me? We have hope. We're, our hope transcends the grave. Our hope transcends life and death. Our hope transcends this present world. Amen? You, you can't, I'm telling you, you can't harm a Christian. I mean, you can bring harm. It's temporal. 
Because there's coming a day when there's going to be no more dying, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. For the old order of things are going to pass away. Amen. Amen? And we are going to be in that place. You know what the Bible says? I will be their God, and they will be my sons, and I will live among them and dwell with them, says the Lord. We're going to be with God like that. We're going to be with God right in his presence forever and ever and ever. And they will never again harm on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. There will never again be pain. Man, I'll tell you, I'll look around this world. It's a dark place, but I have hope. I have hope. Amen? I hope you have that same hope. I guess we got to end there. Let's pray. Let me, let me end with this verse of scripture from Romans. Paul says, The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, nor in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife or jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Amen? What kind of people ought we to be? The day is almost here. The the night is almost gone. The day is at hand. We ought to be holy people. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do eagerly look for that day when you will come and deliver us. And... God, we, um, we want to be a people that please you in, in every respect. God, that our lives would be just a, a glorious reflection of, of your power. Help us, God, to be good Christians. Help us to be Christians who live our lives well before the world, that people would see us and take note that we have been with Jesus. That, God, our lives would be a living testimony to your saving grace. And that, Father, we might actually be ministers of that reconciliation. Oh, Lord, put the gospel in our mouths and fill our hearts with compassion for the lost. And, Lord, may we be about the business of warning them of the soon coming wrath and explaining to them the great refuge that you have provided at the cross. We thank you for our glorious Lord Jesus. He is everything to us, and we praise you for your goodness in giving him to us. In his name we pray. Amen.